Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, Episode 49, The Documentaries of Louis Mao, Part 1. Uh, my name is David Blakesley. I'm the regular host of this show, along with Trevor Barrett. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, David. Good to be back. Yes, it is. <laughs> we have we have been a little bit of a hiatus there. Uh, maybe it doesn't feel quite as long to some listeners as it does to us because we kind of had an old episode that kind of hit the podcast airwaves uh, several weeks or so after it was recorded. But yeah, we have been on a little bit of a break. Uh, it, we took the month of uh, October mostly off. I think I think our uh, last episode was recorded in very early October, but we uh, we were anticipating that we would jump right back into it with uh, with this uh, three part series on the documentaries of Louis Mao, which is the big one. This is the uh, big blockbuster as far as the Eclipse series sets are concerned. Uh, Eclipse series number two released back in April of two thousand seven, and uh, back when the Eclipse series was this kind of fresh, exciting new thing that Criterion fans and cinephiles in general were kind of intrigued about. Uh, well, yeah, we're kind of at the other end of that uh, process now as the Eclipse series gives all the impressions of having kind of been wound down or at least, uh, uh, you know, put in mothballs for extended periods of yeah. time by the Criterion yeah. Collection. And we've talked about that on this show before a few times, uh, so we won't belabor that point. But uh, we are here today to begin kind of a, a three-part investigation of this uh, very substantial set. This is a set that I think retailed for like what one hundred and nineteen dollars or one hundred twenty bucks SRP when it first came out, and probably you can get it cheaper through any number of different sales. Uh, but to help us uh, with this heavy lifting required for these uh, very intriguing, uh, very diverse collection of uh, documentaries by uh, a very intriguing and diverse uh, eclectic director himself, Louis Mao, we are joined by. Our good friend and supporter and longtime, uh, you know, contributor in various ways to our own versions of Criterion Madness, Mr. Keith Enright. Keith, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, you titans of industry, you viewers of eclipses. How are you? Well, I'm very happy to be back. I'm really happy to have you on board with us and uh, ready to wield my clout <laughs> as, a, as the last standing advocate for the Eclipse series and hoping that by some miracle, by some uh, feat of logistics, we can get that up to the nice round number of 50 Eclipse series releases. That means we've got, what, six more to go. It's a long shot, but let's, let's, uh, let's push for it. It would scratch some itches, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, and it is interesting as I think about the Eclipse series and, uh, of course, a lot of us, uh, myself included, have gotten into Filmstruck, the, the new streaming service that Criterion and TCM and a few other labels have partnered up on. And as I really look at, you know, the Filmstruck lineup and how it continues to grow as uh, Criterion has now kind of ceased their relationship with Hulu and... Uh, you know, is in the process of transferring that library over to the new site. It really does feel like, in some ways, the Eclipse series is a bit redundant as far as availability of films is concerned, although I still like having them on disc. I still like having the liner notes. I still like having the curation of a defined set of, you know, four, five, six films, whatever the case may be. But uh, Filmstruck really does seem to you know, cut the legs out from underneath the necessity of a of a series like Eclipse when it's pretty much just bare bones DVDs, 
uh, standard definition transfers uh, with no special features. Well, you know, you really can do that on Filmstruck yourself. You can set it up by director, set it up by eras, set it up by genre, whatever you want to do, and kind of make your own little mini Eclipse series. But uh, I don't know. Any thoughts, guys? Have we gotten into uh, the Eclipse or the, the Filmstruck service at all? Anything we want to kind of kick around on that notion? Well, well I, I haven't talked with either of you about that. I, I've listened to more conversations about it than I've engaged in, but I'm, I'm enjoying Filmstruck, and a lot of it is fairly curated. You know, they, they have their little, um, uh, you know, films by such and such director and they might even have an introduction by someone on the outside which already puts it over the over what uh, we get with the eclipse other than liner notes um so you know i've i i agree it scratches that itch um the nice thing about the eclipse is you can go through it and kind of see segments and they come out once every few months or whatever when they were when they were coming out so you had a chance to take some some bite-sized pieces out and feel like you were making some progress. Whereas Filmstruck, you know, that's just kind of never-ending. So <laughs> there's sometimes for me the the tendency to to sit down and and think, oh, what should I watch tonight? And then finally just to go to bed because I've wasted all my time <laughs> deciding on what I need to watch tonight. Um, that doesn't happen when you have a, a limited you know, number of, of films in your library. Um, That's right. The discs are right there in front of you. You put them in the player and you push play. Yeah, and, and even Film you and struck, I, you know, you, right. we, we, we can, we, we've been, a lot of my journey through the eclipse, uh, to take your title, David, is from um, our our disciplined efforts to get through them on this. And that's been great. You know, what are, what would we do if we decided to start doing film struck? I mean, I, I can see us, um, eventually just kind of thinking, well, there's, there's so much on there. Just what, what should we do next? You know, but, and when we get into them, you know, let well, let's do some Kenosha to, well, which of the 50 films on there <laughs> should we cover this week? You know, so it, it can be, it can be a big flood, but boy, it's, it's a, it's a great flood. It's a great thing to, to, to have at your fingertips as well. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. That's just a, a, a difference of perspective that I would need to get. But I, I do um, I do share some of the doom and gloom with uh, regards to the Eclipse series. I think that Filmstruck takes takes what uh, what we got from it and does it pretty well, um, for presumably for many more people, and we'll we'll just have to see. But I think we might have we might have got the last one um, back in 2015. Yep, that Duvivier set, which we still have to cover, but it is yeah. in our queue. We'll get there eventually. Hang with us, folks. Well, I kind of How about agree. you, Keith? Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I agree with uh, everything you're saying. Um, you know, I've often said that the two of you could, you know, keep Eclipse going with quotations around it for a long time, but just curating your own sets on, on Filmstruck. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, it's the reverse of the old adage. You listen to a general media consumer who says, yeah, I, I don't even know why I have Netflix. I, I looked for 30 minutes for something to watch and there's nothing to watch. And us, we with Filmstruck, we can say, like Travis said, you know, going to bed, he's like, well, I looked for 30 minutes and there's everything to watch. I don't even know where to start. Um, but, you know, I haven't delved into it that much. I'm still waiting for uh, the Apple TV app. You know, there's just something about futzing around with it on my iPad that just doesn't give me the experience that I want. But 
I've really loved what I've seen so far. And what I find is interesting is you you will see some Eclipse packaging on Filmstruck. Um, uh, the Aki Kurismaki set, um, the first one comes to mind. The proletariat. Yeah, the there. proletariat. And But it's interesting because even though the packaging is there and it says Eclipse on it, when you do start the movie, they've stripped out the Eclipse intro and just put the standard Criterion one on there. So it just seems like they definitely have uh, um, moved away from this uh, mindset, I think. Yeah, and I think the DVD-only nature of the line really is pretty self-limiting. I mean, there's just a lot of... A lot of uh, you know Criterion fans out there that just don't really think about that format anymore, and and I understand. I mean, we're already moving into you know 4K ultra high def, and even though Criterion hasn't given us any hints of moving into that territory themselves, um, you know, we're just kind of getting pretty accustomed to super high definition images, and uh, even though you know, I, you know, as part of my kind of rejuvenation, if you will, uh, with a recent uh, remodeling of my basement and shelving system and a new 4K UHD TV and 4K UHD player. Uh, you know, the DVDs really do. I'll, I'll just kind of give a little, uh, you know, merchandising plug as we're here on, uh, you know, uh, post-Thanksgiving weekend recording, getting ready for the holiday season coming up here. If you're in the market for new technology, uh, I will say this, you know, uh, I've just got a 50-inch ultra-high-def TV, but the the differences that it's made, even in the quality of the, the image on these DVDs that I've been watching from the Louis Mal set, is very significant and very much worth your while. Uh, I don't know if it's just the TV, uh, you know, if that's going to make a difference if you're not going to replace your player yet, but the combination of the TV and the player is remarkable. So uh, I'll, I'll give a little, a little uh, plug for... Uh, the, the tech upgrade, if uh, people are contemplating whether or not it's worth it, I say definitely, yes, it is worth it. You will notice the difference. My girlfriend is out of town. I think I'm going to head to the store this afternoon. <laughs> the, the bargains are out there waiting, <laughs> folks. And uh, even if you don't hear this until sometime in early December or whenever, uh, I'm sure they'll be waiting for you then as well. I've been curious since you said that you packed that in, how, how it's been affecting it. Sounds great. That's exciting. Yeah, well, good. Well, okay, well, that's good enough preliminaries. Uh, it is nice to be back in the saddle here recording podcasts again. And, and as I said to open us up, we are going to be doing a three-parter here. So we're going to take a couple weeks to uh, get into the next phase of this set, which is the Indian films. And then uh, the next week and later December, we'll uh, get to the last two films. Uh, basically, three divisions of this uh, big blockbuster documentaries of Louis Mao, a documentary film. So let's talk a little bit about Louis Mao. He is one of these, uh, you know, kind of interesting directors. He kind of sometimes gets lumped in with the Nouvelle Vague, the French New Wave. He was a young director kind of coming up at the same time as guys like uh, Chabral, Godard, Truffaut. Uh, and, and even though he's got a sensibility somewhat similar, he just wasn't really part of that circle. He just kind of happened to be the same age as these guys. His career was was very, uh, you know, kind of all over the place. He he, he was a very restless, uh, curious, hard-to-peg director who, uh, you know, 
you know, it was kind of has the reputation of not really making the same film twice, which uh, even though you might have a lot of admiration for some of those names I just mentioned, they really did become somewhat more predictable, somewhat more kind of monolithic in their style and their sentiments. And uh, Louis Mao really was just all over the place from uh, the late 50s up until uh, the mid-90s when he passed away at what definitely seemed like much too young of an age who with a lot of uh, creative uh, vision and talent uh, sadly uh, left unexpressed uh, when when he died of cancer at around age, age 62, 63, something like that. So, you know, we, uh, we are focusing on the lesser known side of Louis Mao's films. I mean, he's probably most recently been acclaimed in the Criterion fandom circles with uh, his contributions to the uh, Sean Gregory box set, the first two thirds, uh, My Dinner with Andre and Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants was a Blu-ray upgrade several years ago. Uh, Elevator to the Gallows is still kind of a rumored upgrade coming up with its great Miles Davis soundtrack. That was kind of Miles' big premiere breakthrough as a director. And he's done a lot of other cool stuff uh, interspersed uh, throughout the years. But, uh, you know, Keith, tell us a little bit about what's your take on Louis Mal, and we'll get Trevor's input as well just to talk about this guy as a director and what he's meant to us as, as film fans. Well, I think he's been very well represented in the Criterion Collection, of course, and I've loved um, just about everything he's done. I have to say that... Uh, uh, I didn't find a real good entry into Black Moon, but I will try it again someday. Um, yeah, that is the one that sort of stands out as a sore thumb for a lot of folks. Right. But, it, but speaking of sore thumbs, I kind of wanted to mention um, where he, you know, where he went that hasn't been part of the Criterion Collection. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me that with all this acclaim, he's made some, uh, he's made a few, he's made a few, attempts at crowd-pleasing that I think actually kind of turned out to be somewhat of stinkers. And, you know, I was surprised to see when we talk about his early 60s uh, output, a lot of which is in the collection, if you get to the mid-60s, you know, he, he did a couple of, uh, I guess maybe you'd call them sex romps of the day with Bridget Bardot, I think, that, you know, certainly don't have the acclaim that they uh, that others have today. And even once he came to America and he had... He had the kind of the one-two punch of um, Pretty Baby and Atlantic City. Um, you know, even in the early '80s, he tried he tried a remake of uh, Big Deal on Madonna Street called Crackers, which, um, for for all intents and purposes, is not remembered uh, fondly to this day. Um, with I think that was with uh, Sean Penn and. Well, I forget who else, but, uh, and then of course, um, one of his, you mentioned is, I think what was his last film, which is, uh, Vanya on 42nd street right before that was a, a thriller that had, you know, some good repute to it, which is, uh, damage or damages, um, unseen by me, but I have it on criterion laser so I will get around to it one of these days, probably while we're doing this whole set over the next month or so. Um, but at, you know, I, I I kind of agree that he does get he gets lumped in with the Nouvelle Vogue. Um, certainly, doesn't belong there, and I think that it's both um, helped him and hurt him 
because if if you think of him in that regard and you go look at some of his films, you go, geez, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, I'm I'm very glad for the representation that we do have in the collection. Yeah, how about you, Trevor? What are your thoughts on Louis Mal? Well, Louis Mal might be one of the first directors that I came to know because of the Criterion Collection. Um, you know, I, I didn't back when I was getting into film, I didn't know what the Criterion Collection was. It, it had only been doing it was in its, its uh, DVD stage, but only for a few years. And you know, so when I went to look for my Kurosawa movies, they were the ones that I, I checked out of the library. Um, but once I started to discover, well, th- what is this label? <laughs> what is this this Criterion thing that pops up every time I put in one of these good movies? Um, well, that's when I first uh, discovered Louis Mall as well. Now, I'd heard of My Dinner with Andre, but uh, only because of Waiting for Guffman. Um, so I didn't know much about it, uh, didn't know uh, who Louis Mall was, Um at least it never registered with me. I don't. I hadn't seen any of his movies before I started to, to delve into him through the Criterion Collection, and oh boy, I've I've really enjoyed uh, going through and and discovering his work um, as they've released it. I think that uh, you know that all the movies that you mentioned, David, are are ones that I've really enjoyed. Uh, agree that I haven't found too much to to love about <laughs> the Black Moon yet. Um, and not sure when I'll give it another shot, I, but um, but one that we haven't mentioned yet that I just fell in love with was Zazie dans le Metro. Boy, I I think that film is so much fun, just uh, vivacious. It's one that I can share with my kids, and we just have a great time with it. Um, so he's he's very diverse. He's got a, a a bunch of different kinds of movies. I mean, you go from something like Zazie with all of its camera effects and just a fun cartoonish style to my dinner with Andre, you know, just setting it up and, and filming a couple of guys having dinner um, across from each other for quite a while and making both of them very engaging um, uh, films. And uh, I love Vanya on 42nd Street. Um, you know, really just uh, just like a lot of his work. Glad that we have a lot of it available at our fingertips. And um, yet, uh, during all of this time, I knew that there was this Eclipse set, um, the documentaries of Louis Mall. I figured, boy, that, that sounds like something I want to get into, show another side of him, this very diverse filmmaker. I guess I just needed this excuse because I'd never have popped them in and watched them until just uh, the last uh, month or so. And have have really, really enjoyed what I've found there. We'll get into more specifics, but... But boy, he he just uh, had a bunch of uh, different ideas, a bunch of different ways of, of, of producing his work, and glad that uh, you know if you go on Filmstruck, to, for for example, you'll you'll just if you type in Louis Mall, you'll find uh, just uh, a long list of things that you can spend your time going through, and and I'd say you know based on my own experience, ninety seven percent of what they have is is worthwhile i i don't have a lot of experience with anything outside of the criterion collection um so i've never seen any of his thrillers blockbusters um uh well or at least these more mainstream um audience pleasing pleasing ones that that you were talking about keith yeah well you know speaking of louis mel on filmstruck i mean pretty much this whole set is available so even if you don't want to shell out the coin to bring these uh, dvds into your personal collection 
you can get everything uh, that Louis Mal has on disc of Criterion, along with a film called May Fools, which has not yet been released on disc, and one that I'm actually going to be reviewing as part of my Criterion Reflections blog series called Spirits of the Dead, which is a kind of an anthology film uh, with a segment from Louis Mal along with Federico Fellini and uh, Roger Vadim, uh, three adaptations of short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. So even though that's a little bit, I'm past that point in my chronological sequence for those who are familiar with my Criterion Reflections blog, uh, it is a film of 1968. I'm still in 1968. Now that Filmstruck has made that one available, I said, hey, why not throw it into the hopper there? So I'm going to start incorporating some of these Filmstruck exclusive titles into my uh, reflections timeline as well. So I'll be intrigued to see what Al had to say in the year of 1968 and his adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe story. So, yeah, yeah, just another plug for Filmstruck as far as it's making a lot of cool stuff available. But, Keith, I want to ask, now, you, you had kind of sort of volunteered yourself to be a guest on this episode. Was there a particular, uh, you know, intrigue or interest that you had with Louis Mao that said, hey, I want to be part of this particular uh, podcast? Well, when we talked about it, I guess it's over a year ago now, and you asked me to, <clears throat> excuse me, you take a look at what was left. Um, that's the one, you know, you talked about its heft and price and all that. That's one that has sat on my shelf for so long, and I mentioned to you before that, uh, you know, I watched some of the uh, Phantom India stuff years and years ago, but didn't have the, uh, uh, the not the willpower, but the uh, consistency to get through it at that time. Um, but it was also the first Eclipse set that I ever bought. Uh, when, when, when Criterion started Eclipse, even though I was a collector at the time, I wasn't exactly sold on the concept. I think my mindset was, geez, I can... I hardly get through all these movies. Now they're going to throw five at a time at me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but once I did make the uh, once I did make the leap, uh, it was the first one that I bought. I was very intrigued by it. In episode three of this series, we'll get into the you know the documentary made in Minnesota, which is where I'm from. It's very it's kind of like how I grew up. So we'll talk about that later. So I had, that was kind of an entry point to me, and I did watch uh, In God's Country um, right away. But the rest of it has just kind of sat there, and I love Louis Mall, And it's, you know, just as Trevor said, you know, sometimes you need an excuse to watch these and or to put them to the top of your queue. And that's what I wanted to do here because, um, you know, I, I love documentary as a, a, a film form. And it was very intriguing to me to see somebody that uh, is, although he started in documentary with Jacques Cousteau, uh, is certainly much more well-known for his fiction features. And I wanted to see what he brought to that. Yes, excellent. And and that's a great uh, lead-in right there with the Jacques Cousteau reference. Yeah, back in the late 1950s, I think it was 56, 57, he was recruited out of film school by Jacques Cousteau, who, of course, at that time was just a kind of an un unknown guy who was uh, very interested in uh, life underwater. And uh, they put this, uh, this film together called The Silent World, uh, which won both the Palme d'Or and the Oscar. <laughs> so what a way to start your filmmaking career, you know? Exactly. Even though Louis Mal was not 
credited, was not part of the uh, Oscar ceremony. Uh, that was still pretty much a, a peak moment for him as far as uh, international recognition was concerned. Uh, it got me thinking, too. Like, yeah, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a nice uh, Cousteau Blu-ray set? And I looked around, and there is no such thing. I cannot find any Jacques Cousteau Blu-rays anywhere. There are, of course, some DVDs. Um, but I think it would be really nice to see some restoration work done on some of those classic Jacques Cousteau films, whether they're some of the TV work or not. So, And it actually seems to me like a Jacques Cousteau anthology would be very criterion-worthy. So I'm just going to throw that little nugget out there to see if anybody else wants to jump on board that train and uh, make a little noise. Because uh, yeah. I think Jacques Cousteau was very important as a as a force of filmmaking, uh, kind of like the uh, Jean Panlevé taking that whole uh, you know aquatic life uh, through a kind of a scientific lens, but really just capturing the spectacular beauty of that part of Earth's surface and putting it on film. And uh, Louis Mao played a very important role in, in getting uh, Jacques Cousteau's career up and running as far as being a force in cinema. But he kind of went in other directions. He, he did become a feature filmmaker. He did Elevator to the Gallows. He did The Lovers, another great Criterion DVD. It's a film I really enjoy. It was a it was an important uh, kind of breakthrough in terms of loosening the grip of censorship, of, of portraying sexuality in a kind of a frank and modern, candid style, especially woman sexuality. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then he uh, got into this, uh, you know, uh, this niche of taking his camera out into the real world. And so this first disc that we're going to be talking about today are three films set in France, his his homeland. Uh, there's a little bit of a uh, distance in chronology. Vive la Tour was filmed and released in the early 1960s, 1962, I believe. Uh, Humaine, Trophy Humaine, and Place de la République uh, were recorded or released in the early 70s, I think, 73 and 74. And so you've got about a 10-year gap, a 10, 11-year gap between the, the first film and the set, just a short 20-minute offering and then the the second two in which time of course he did a lot of other things in between but i think it's pretty good thematically to focus these three films that are all set in the nation of france just throwing uh, our gaze on at different aspects of french society so let's start with the first one which is vive la tour a uh, uh, just kind of a study of the tour de france which had been already a a long-standing cultural institution. I think the first Tours de France were held in the early 1900s, and of course the race just grew and grew and became a just much more of a kind of a stop everything cultural, you know, landmark uh, every year uh, throughout the nation of France. Uh, this this is a bicycle race that covers a lot of territory. It has basically any type of bicycle racing that you could imagine, you know, short sprints where it's just an all-out dash, long, grueling mountain climbs, you know, just uh, there's team uh, events, there's individual events. Uh, I don't know, Trevor, Keith, do you guys have more, you know, erudite uh, knowledge of the Tour de France than I do? I mean, I've I'm not an expert on it. I've watched bits and pieces of it. Of course, Lance Armstrong was a big household name for a number of years as he was uh, winning the tour and then, of course, the scandals that followed. But uh, I don't know, any other background on the Tour de France that either of you guys want to contribute? I'll leave that to Trevor. Oh, background. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm that big of a fan um, to know too much more than what you've kind of said. It's just something that I've always enjoyed watching um, come around, you know, June, July. I get uh, I get uh, exhausted even just thinking about what these guys are doing, but I can't turn my head away from the screen. Um, it's uh, it, it is grueling. It's something that as you watch these these individuals get on that mountain, get on those um, sprints, and then finally end up in Paris for the the final leg. And by that time, you you often have a pretty good idea who's going to win, and it's almost a big victory lap and a big celebration for for a lot of people just to get together and say you're almost there. Everyone's doing a good job. Um, which is another thing that I do like about the Tour de France. They they have winners every day. You know, you you, you might have someone who who wins one leg of the race, and and you know that's all that they got into the Tour de France to do. They just wanted to win one day, and then you know obviously you have uh, your more um, famous people who go on to win overall, which is what Lance Armstrong did for several years um, back in the early two thousands, and. You know, to do that is 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 its own feat, and um, unfortunately, you know, as as we get into with this uh, this documentary, there's a lot of things people will do in order to get their body to perform better than it might naturally perform, and um, you know, so there's there's always been scandals with uh, with drugs and with um, you know steroids and, and boosters. Uh, just that's that's been part of the the Tour de France ever since I started watching it. Um, but watching this documentary, we see that it's you know back even in the early 1960s there were things people could do, um, and that was kind of plaguing the reputation of the race. But but you know it's just uh, it's it's fun to watch. They have their teams and their teams help them out. You know they 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 get going. They get their drafts. They they help each other. Um, build up. I think they kind of pick, you know, hey, maybe I'll win a couple of these individual races, but but we're all here because you're the better overall um, biker. You're going to win some of the um, some of the sprints, but you're also going to do really well on the mountain climbs, and therefore we're we're here for you. And um, you know, it, it goes on for for a few weeks. Um, I can't even imagine that that uh, that kind of lifestyle of uh getting on your bike every day going fast and hard and um knowing that it's not even close to over yet <laughs> at the beginning um uh, one of my favorite images is from the triplets of belleville which is a you know old french cartoon from the uh, early 2000s that that um has the the racers coming down and then getting worked on by you know their their physical therapists or whatever and they get they get some egg beaters and use those on their calves and I just think well that that actually probably looks just about right <laughs> probably looks like just what you want to happen to those calves at the end of the day just just beat these things up <laughs> so it's it's been a lot of fun to 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 watch over the years um and this documentary was 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 really interesting for for me to, to step back, uh, you know, 40 years, um, 30, 40 years before I started paying any attention to it and and seeing the, what, what kind of a cultural event it was even even back then. And so, you know, I don't know a ton about the history, um, obviously, since this this very film was uh, was pretty eye opening, um, but more eye opening in the how consistent it seems to have been. You know, it, it talked about things that are still part of the race today. You know, the drugs, the the um, the grueling uh, ups and downs, the 
the the mountain passes and 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 those legs where you go from from sea level up to you know five six seven thousand feet back down to sea level back up to eight thousand feet back down and just what that can do to someone's body um boy yeah and and i think the the documentary covers uh so much of that in a very very short space uh period of time this is a this is a very short documentary that you can you can gulp in uh, while you're eating your breakfast. Well, I, uh, as, as, as some may know, I, I do not have the sports gene. I don't care about, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've joked to David, um, during world series time. It's like, well, you know, I'll see you, I'll see you in November basically. Um, yep. but yeah, I just, I, I, I have no interest in any of this stuff. And that's the, what I liked about this documentary. They didn't talk about personalities. They didn't talk about certain people. They didn't talk about who's winning what, this and that. I wouldn't have cared about any of that. But watching, just watching what these people are going through, now that's a, that's a human interest story that I can get into. And Yeah, how, how do you pee while you're actually going 25 miles an hour down the road on a bicycle? <laughs> I know. And I'm going to use that information. <laughs> um so yeah just from the from the the human element of it i mean it reminds me a a certain amount of tokyo olympiad where you're just you're watching what the body is going through and you're admiring what the body can do that that i can get into um but yeah who who's riding what kind of bike and where they got to and how many races they won i i just don't care but um this was a very, very compelling piece of cinema from that standpoint. Well, yeah, and I think the way it captures the the full surrounding culture of it. I mean, the you know the ordinary people, the nuns, the children, the uh, businessmen, this the the families having their picnics, the uh, you know the kind of goofy floats and parades, and all the hoopla that kind of precedes the event. And then just the uh, the stamina of the men, the the just the dedication. Even you know, not even the guys who are even going to win an event. I mean, they they may not even be contenders for a top ten finish, but they just want to do this thing. They just want to say, "I did the tour," or "I was part of it." Uh, that that one yeah, year, like that one Mount summer, Everest. exactly mm-hmm. right. And and just... even if you crash out and go down in a blaze of glory, at least you put it on the line and, and made it happen. And and the fact that again, this is a this is kind of a nation. Uh, immersive event. I mean, the, the, all these villages, the the big cities, the little uh, you know mountain hamlets, the the agrarian countrysides. I mean, all these different parts of France, and 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 this this particular film sort of seems like a bit of a throwback to where, you know, by today's standards, at least the event was not maybe nearly as you know commercialized or high tech. You know, there's no uh, ultra you know carbon fiber bike. These are all metal bikes, and even though there are maybe some stimulants and other things involved, this just feels like a very pure uh, road race. Uh, again, I'm sure it's all relative, and I'm sure the people of the early '60s were saying, "Ah, well, back in the '20s, that's when that was real, mm-hmm. you know, a bicycle race, you know, and not all this fancy gimmicky stuff now." So, you know, uh, life is always changing in that regard. But uh, this does feel like a pretty gutsy, pretty intense. Uh, display of just of human endurance and of a of a of a society kind of pulling together to 
you know, kind of cheer their guys on. These uh, these young, taut, gaunt, uh, lean-bodied, heroic young men. Well, and not just human endurance, um, though that's definitely part of it. But you get the one guy who um, is well past human endurance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just you're following him as his bike is going, what, two, three miles? I mean, barely able to, to balance itself as he's going right. uh, um, down that road. And he's going back and forth until finally just over in the gutter just collapses on, you know, onto his back. Just boom, he's he's down. Um, he's boy, down for the extent. I mean, he's. Yeah. They get an ambulance there. They're slapping him on the cheeks, yeah. and he's still out. Just O U T out. That would that would have yeah. been me so, coming off the starting line. But. <laughs> that's, what I, that's how I thought about it too. <laughs> yeah, the, but it's such a. It is a compelling um, human story, and and I like how you brought in the the the. Just the different villages and such, because that's one thing that I always liked about it, too, is, you know, when I was in high school or whatever, I'd never been out of the country, really, to to get a sense, you know, and I know it's it's very limited, but to get a sense of here's what France is like outside of Paris or outside of the movies that you've gone to see about it, you know, and to see these people going up and down these little streets and... um Ending up on some of the highways between towns, and just getting a sense of the topography and of the distance between things, um, in, a, in a completely you know foreign place to me, was was something that I always loved about the event as well. And you know they change it every year; it doesn't go between the same places all the time. And and they even change it so one year it goes you know clockwise around France, the next year it goes counterclockwise. So you get you get mountains in different spots of the of, of the event. Um, so it's it's a, it's one of these things that's ever changing, kind of like a good a good uh, a, a thing that I love about the Major League Baseball too. You know, you get these just different ball fields. You never yeah, know who's going to perform particularly right. well. Yep, different dimensions, different depths before you get that home run. Weather conditions, um, always the whole keeping thing, something. Right? something changing up and that's something that i do like about the tour de france too that this this uh this shows as well you know the the bars that they run into to just raid and get their drinks (laughs) i don't know if that's still a part of it i'm I'm, maybe it is something i didn't didn't know about they don't show that on tv here in the states i guess um all the bar rating so and they i don't think i've ever seen any of them um, using their interesting ways of going to the bathroom either on TV here. That was new to me as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I think your comparison to Tokyo Olympiad is, is pretty right on, Keith. And I, and I think that does make for much better cinema than a, a straight-up documentary about the winners and losers of a particular year. But really just focusing on that, uh, just kind of that, that common human element, even if uh, even if you're in a society that doesn't really esteem bicycle racing or doesn't really, uh, you know, have an event of this magnitude. It, it, I think we can all empathize with these guys who are just pushing it, with the fans who are just intrigued to see, you know, is their guy going to win? I think that's the other sense, too. You, you know, there's not a, a any narrative exploration of it but you get the sense that these guys are representing their hometowns their villages maybe it's a brand maybe it's a product but uh you know there's a sense of genuine enthusiasm for for the local champion who's mm-hmm. going to go out there and represent our community or or uh, the folks that we identify with and and there is something just kind of you know uh tribal in the most positive sense of that of that term uh of just you know 
you know the society coming behind these these young heroes and and uh, rooting them on and and enjoying uh the the spectacle of competition uh and and dedication perseverance that they that they embody there completely agree. so yeah and yeah, any much more to say? I mean, it is. It's a pretty quick little clip there. Uh, I've posted a few links in the show notes from, uh, interestingly enough, uh, cyclist websites, you know, guys yeah. who are just kind of hardcore bikers who like to sort of see this as a as a good throwback example and, uh, you know, just admiration for names that are p- perhaps familiar to them, uh, legends of their of their chosen sport. Well, I think we should uh, take a couple of seconds and talk about the actual filmmaking because I think well, that's it pretty is. impressive it's, too. I it's mean, very dynamic. He's really right up in the action there. Go ahead. And these are not – I mean, these. this is not being filmed on an iPhone. I mean, this uh, – you would ostensibly <laughs> right. think this is still some pretty bulky equipment. And to go along at 30 miles an hour, whether they're on a motorcycle or in a car next to them, and, you know, they're right up in their faces. And it's it's beautiful filmmaking, but – I just kept waiting for the crashes, you know, and that to me, to me, I mean, they, they did some really special things there that I, I don't know that people had seen too much before that, um, is just the motorcyclists amaze me because they talked about how they know they were saying, we know the drivers or we know the bicyclists every move. So it's very safe. And I'm going, this is safe. There's no way yeah. that is safe. And I mean, there's 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 no you know there's there's no uh, you know no, nobody on the motorcycles is wearing a helmet. Nope. You know, they're just kind of, and there's and guys kind of riding. They're they're drinking. They're <laughs> writing their notes. They're taking yeah. naps. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's really reckless and really crazy by by today's standards, yeah. at least. And uh, <laughs> but but you're right. It, you know, I think about documentaries of sports films from the 50s, 60s, old Olympic films. I'll, Side of Tokyo Olympiad, where it really is. There's a stationary camera, and here comes the winner, yeah, and the yeah. crowd cheers, and it's just this kind of real staticky stuff. Here you are right up in it. In fact, so incredibly close, it's almost uncomfortable at times when, especially when you're focusing on scenes of <laughs> suffering or or uh, you know waste elimination <laughs> or exactly. other kind of exactly. you know vulnerable uh, aspects of being human. Yeah. One little spot, if I can, I guess, end on a, a slightly negative note, negative note for myself is I found it was a poor choice um, two times that I noticed that they put uh, fake sounds on the soundtrack. Um, uh, the, the crash scene there. The crash scene uh, when it sounded like 33 semis crashing instead of a bunch of bikes. And, skidding. Yeah. <laughs> And then when that biker biker went down, you know, Trevor, you talked about it, um, you know, he finally went down and then they put this, uh, you know, fake sound on the soundtrack of, you know, the echoey voices like he was hearing voices and this and that. I found that as kind of an odd and unfortunate choice. But uh, other than that, it was a very real and immediate uh, experience to watch this. Well, and it seems like choices like that may have influenced Maul. Um, his philosophy moving forward with documentaries would be to eliminate himself and uh, even more. And you can never entirely eliminate the perspective of the filmmaker in documentaries. You know, that, that's a conversation that's been had m- many times and um, uh, better than I'd be able to, to even recap here. But um, but he did tend to, to move toward, I just want to film people and not really 
interfere as much as you know maybe he did in in Vive la Tour. Um, though I I didn't notice too many other instances of pure um, interference other than here's got to be in front of these bikers this massive rig with the cameras and a crew on it sure. you know that, that's pl- probably plenty of in- interference but um you know just this sense of i'm just going to film from from here on out and try to eliminate myself from the picture but also uh, as much as possible from the atmosphere around it um and i'm you know not having watched many of the ones that are still to come i don't know how much he succeeded in that um but just reading the liner notes in in the that come with the the set uh talks about um you know be, before uh humane trope humane uh kind of getting this philosophy of i'm i'm just going to meld into the background and let this thing roll um and you know his his shot perspectives and his editing choices are always going to be there, always going to influence our perspective as well. Um, but I think he did he did try to uh, eliminate some of the artificiality that you can inject into a, a documentary. Uh, and you know, not sure if that's what he was talking about or not. But um, we should uh, maybe mention the editing. Uh, surely he got hours and hours and hours of footage, and uh, to clip this down to just uh you know 15 minutes or so is an exceptional feat <laughs> to be able to get this thing um put together in a way that's compelling and still feels whole you know there's there i'm sure there's a lot that that was left out a lot of different things that uh, he could have put in but uh, he really found his focus i think in just uh, just showing these 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 communities come together and showing these individuals going through the rigors of of this uh athletic event so did a great job um cutting it down and uh, but i agree with you it's a strange choice to to think oh we better add some more sound to this this wreck in particular that was just weird (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's it's a short subject so there's a little entertainment that value they threw in there i I thought it was just kind of interesting how they capped it up with the shot of the three guys on the podium you know the yellow jersey and presumably these are the, the grand winners of 1962 and that was that you know no names no credits just like well there they are holding their flowers <laughs> and standing up on their little uh, riser there and that's the end uh but trevor you kind of did a nice job of kind of segueing us into the next film humane trope humane which uh, was a 1973 release so we're talking 11 years later uh the phantom india and calcutta documentaries that we'll be talking about next time were already in the books and on the air and and uh, behind Louis Mal, when he kind of came back to France and did a another documentary film, kind of a direct cinema treatment of uh, of the automobile industry, I guess it's a kind of a, an examination of uh, an automotive assembly plant, a Citroen factory uh, in the north of France, which is where Mal himself, I think, was originally from. And we haven't really said much about his biography, but he was a man born to some privilege. Uh, another distinction, perhaps, between him and you know more hard scrabble guys like Francois Truffaut is that Louis Mel uh, he had options as a as different types of uh, you know careers uh, as a as a young man who was born into a family of some wealth. I think his uh, 
His mother's side of the family uh, were inheritors or heirs to a fortune from sugar, from beet sugar. And uh, so, you know, he, he had some privileges and, and some opportunities, and he kind of chose film studies as as, uh, as his vocation and obviously did very well with it. Uh, but he kind of goes back to the working class here uh, and looks at the process of putting cars together and the fact that humans uh, have a very huge role in, in creating these machines that are just so basics to so many of the things that we take for granted in modern life. Uh, this is a film that's about 80 minutes long. Uh, there is some dialogue. There are, there are people talking to each other, mostly in a kind of a segment about 15 minutes into the film for about another 15 minutes or so. We see people in an automotive showroom where these cars that are being manufactured are are put on display. So you see the customers uh, kind of giving their evaluations of the vehicles. You see salespeople kind of giving their spiel. You see kind of uh, women kind of models on the showroom floor kind of, uh, you know, chatting up the customers. Other than that, this is... Well, not exactly a silent movie either because there is a soundtrack, a very industrial kind of rhythmic, uh, you know, pounding metal and machinery uh, humming soundtrack. Uh, but that's really the atmosphere that's created here is just, you know, stuff being built. Uh, yeah. So what do you guys think of Humane Trope Humane? Well, well, those that follow me, especially in the Facebook groups, know that I abhor uh, – lists of favorite films, but uh, this would be up there for me. I absolutely loved this film, and I joked to you guys by email a few days ago that I keep falling asleep watching this, and that is <clears throat> that is absolutely not a knock on the film. It's just... No, the, it's... it's. I get it. Uh, it's the meditative quality of it. I mean, I, I watched this film in toto three times over the last 10 days, but I started it uh, probably eight or nine times. And even last night when I was hopped up on coffee and focused on making sure that I watched all of these uh, one more time through with the utmost uh, wide-eyed attention, I did not fall asleep, but I found myself actually getting into uh, somewhat of a meditative state uh, watching this. And to me... This movie uh, has done something that very, very few uh, movies have ever done for me, and that's just made me um, kind of really takes me to another place. And uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's got a very trance-like quality yeah. to it. I mean, um, you're you're kind of in a way because Miles' camera. And, and audio recording is doing the work and he's not interjecting himself in a blatantly editorial sense or he's not interviewing the people. He's, he's really allowing us to sort of commune with them as we envision what it might be like doing these very mundane tasks for hours on end. And there is it is kind of a hypnotic, uh, you know, tranquilizing effect you know, I, which I, I also agree. I found very kind of comforting, although there's also a sense of empathy for yes. these people who are, 
somewhat reduced in their humanity. And I think that the choice of the title is also quite quite intriguing. And maybe we can reflect on that a little bit more. But just in terms of watching this kind of cross-section of society, I mean, not really a full cross-section, but this is this is the working class. These are the people who are kind of making the products that allow the people at the top of the system to reap enormous profits. Uh, but they're probably, you know, getting a comfortable living out of all of this, out of these very simple, very repetitive tasks. They're probably doing okay. You know, they're getting by and they can do their work for their eight or nine hours or whatever it is, leave it behind, go home, get with their family, have some something of a life that they enjoy and they come back the next day and do it all over again. And uh, yeah, this is a very local you know, manifestation of a particular factory in a particular country in France, but how many millions or billions of people spend their days in somewhat the equivalent of this type of, uh, of task oriented drudgery, if you want to call it that. Right. 30 years ago when I was in college, I spent two summers working in a cement block factory and you know, it really brought me back to that, of course, you know, hour after hour watching these cement blocks come by and, and putting them in different, different patterns and this and that. And, you know, back then, minimum wage was $3.35, and I was making $8 an hour doing this. I mean, I was I was the king of all I surveyed yeah. in my own little yeah. world. And <laughs> But at what cost? I mean, yeah, I love that paycheck every Friday, but, you know, the drudgery and the just absolute almost existential crisis you could go into every day just standing there uh, was was horrible and you know i read a few reviews of this movie and some people would say you know this is this is a movie that really shows how how important that these people think that their work is and they and they rise above the drudgery and then others were just saying you know that they're automatons and i i tend to agree with that because i've i've been one and I really think that that's what, you know, the brilliance of that middle section is, is that we've watched these people, you know, be a, a huge or a very small cog in this huge experience and day after day and blood and sweat and toil that they're doing to make these cars. And then, you know, you go to the auto show and you've got all these people ostensibly who work the same type of jobs in many cases you know, sitting there and nitpicking and complaining about this and that. Uh, you the know, dashboard it, it, has too much tilt to yeah, it or exactly. something like that. Exactly. You should have put this. This car's garbage. This car's, yeah, it's garbage. They try to make things better, but, you know, they just make them worse. And, you know, I, I when I first watched that middle section, it really kind of took me out of it. I'm like, you know, what's the point here? But then I, when I realized that, you know, um, it's... You know, in this country, we and I hope I don't step on anybody's toes here, but in this country, you know, we talk about the the loss of manufacturing jobs, and I completely agree with that, that how horrible that is. But to me, it's more just about the loss of jobs because, uh, you know, you look at a job like this, you look at somebody who's stringing uh, wiring harnesses all day long to put into a car. I mean, it it just seems so soul sucking, and and you know. Um, 
at the ex- at, you know at the expense of somebody earning a good living to me that really is a job that a robot should do um it's just unfortunate we can't find other jobs for these people to do but it's just uh i i think that mall really really got at something here you know especially with the title going back to you know nietzsche and all that i i can't expound on that with any intelligence but well, but but yeah, just to bring it up, I mean, yeah. Nietzsche's one of his earliest books was called, you know, in the German, "Human All Too Human," and yeah. it seems to me that Mao has to be making that reference right. there, and that was the well, it was Nietzsche's first book where he kind of used those aphorisms, these kind of short, pithy statements to kind of, you know, punctuate his arguments rather than the more traditional philosophical essays that he began with as a younger writer. But yeah, "human all too human," and when you when you're using that phrase to describe what's going on where there's such a intrusion of machinery (laughs) and the, the automaton that you mentioned earlier is kind of a, as a, an archetype of the human who's really just, you know, a rote machine, him or herself, uh, just following a certain set of instructions and what, what's going on in the mind of that, of that sentient being who's just, you know, applying that blowtorch or twisting those, those, uh, pipes or or you know fastening the, those bolts uh and and nuts to together or whatever it is that they're doing uh, there's so much more that that person is capable of there's so much more potential there and of course isn't their entire life but it's a big pretty doggone big chunk of it that's being occupied uh for really years uh right, right. The, the the best years of their lives so to speak you know, losing their losing their souls and losing their fingers just for somebody to look at the car on the other end and go, eh, piece of crap. <laughs> well, you guys have been, you know, I've been enjoying the conversation because you're touching on a lot of things um, that I felt as well. Though when I sat down to watch the film, I wondered what it would do. You know, it begins with this nice little vista of countryside and before the camera pans over and shows you the factory. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I, I know what the movie's called. I know the title. I know what Maul is doing here. He's, he's definitely going at this from a little bit of a critical perspective. But we've seen that before. I mean, we can go back to Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times right. and, uh, you know, see the, the sheep uh, running into these places and um, and then working in such a way that, you know, I, you just think of that Modern Times sequence where um, he's – the tramp is sitting there uh, – twisting the wrench one quarter turn um and not being able to to get it out of his mind um you know that's some, yeah, or some metropolis i'll throw that in metropolis. there as well you know well yeah. you have the tati films you got playtime um which i thought of plenty of times during the the car show sequence and then you've even got traffic which um yeah oh yeah which does begin almost the same way with this here's the, here's the factory and here's how this thing is being made and here's here's another car show of people talking about their product and so i wondered what mall would be able to do differently here if it would be somewhat the same as as um you know critiques that we've had in the past but boy it it does just delve deeply and, and hits you right in the heart. I, there's there's so much going on be, behind these people's eyes and and in the silence. You know, we're sitting there just listening to the sound go on, but we're sitting there with these people and we're we're watching them engage in this mundane task. But Mal, 
you know, he, he usually starts the scene, you know, if he's changing to a new task by showing the task for a few minutes. And then he just sits there and watches that person's face for minutes and minutes. And it's in that silence. It's in it, it, that you really get to kind of imagine, you know, and empathize with this person a little bit to to discover a, a depth in that human existence that you don't see if you're just watching this as a how things are made um, documentary, which I love those, you know. I love yeah, me too. My, my childhood with Sesame Street, boy, that I loved those segments where they'd show how the crayon's being made. But, but you know, those were mostly completely automated systems where you might see someone sorting them a little bit toward the end. Um, but... Or you know, even Laverne and Shirley, we, you see them at the beginning um, screwing the bottles on their on the beer or whatever. Um, you know, I'd, I'd seen this stuff before, but Mall really, really, um, you know, focuses in on body parts. You know, you get those people that are walking while while they string up and and put springs on the upholstery and on the on the seats, and just walking in that line and their feet just moving forward. And it's yeah. Then they have to bounce back, you know. And it's just like this. There's kind of this incredible pressure. You've got to really execute yeah. because if you start backing up, <laughs> well, you know, you get the comic effect from from modern times, right? Exactly, where things are going haywire. But this is this is kind of for serious, <laughs> you know. There's there's no fooling around here. You really got to get the job done. And like I say, these guys with these blow torches and they're uh-huh. just shooting out like two feet of fire and with holding a little it above their bangle- head. Yeah, exactly. For, a little for, cigarette dangling from oh. their lips, and open, you know, the guy's you know sh- uh, shirt zipped down to his belly button. There, it's like you know the guy who the the the, the, the dude who is doing the spray painting. He's got all his protective gear on, but there's no breathing mask. No he's just mask, like, yeah. breathing in all this crap all day, and it's like I kind of shudder to think, man, what price did these people yep. pay? What, what even if I they would only did this like job a for a year from today exactly. or from years later, where it's like, okay, where, where how is this person's health now, thirty years after? You know that would have been um, potentially devastating, but just I had the I think same thought. Optimistic on thirty years. <laughs> well, um, I was just yeah. Well, maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe some of them yeah. are already gone. But you know, you've got the people who did the wiring. Um, they're probably sure. still around, but do they have? Uh, how's their body today? You know, even more than the than Vive La Tour, this one made me think of the body and what it can go through just on you know day to day as people go to work. Yeah, well, those are conditioned athletes on the bikes. These are just kind of ordinary uh, lumpen proletariat, you know, <laughs> and and, yeah. well, and, I mean, and they're not especially always fit. I mean, you see women in the dresses and open-toed shoes, and I'm like, what in the world are they doing on this yeah. factory floor, you know? Well, and they they have conditioned their body to do that one task, that, that and one so task, just exactly. thinking of what yeah. even that does to their body, you know, if they're always using that right arm. I thought about that with the blowtorch guys. Um, you know, they have to just hold that above their head. I mean, I was, uh, again, just getting tired watching him do that. And I think that was a fairly long segment. Um, I don't know if I could hold something over my head for that long. Um, I guess if it's a blowtorch, you have a little bit more incentive to do that. But, uh, boy, I just... <laughs> Should keep you on the alert there, I'd hope, <laughs> yeah. right? But anyway, yeah, yeah. just um, a, a, a superb um, experience going through this film. I, I wasn't bored for a second, even though I can see no. it. You know, if I just told someone what it was, well, you just kind of sit there and watch these people work. Um, you know, that could be seen as very boring, but 
but this this really wasn't and it, it you know to pull in other this this film made me think of tons of other films that are in the collection i thought of um uh yon trolls here is your life where so much of that movie um is about work and the the dangers of work and and you get you, you kind of walk around with that um that young adolescent as he grows and gets various jobs um just to get by and people people die or get maimed in 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 the work that he does with them and there's always the danger he's going to suffer the same fate so what what kind of thing can he have and it all kind of comes back to this um what are we doing as a society to to get this and what could we possibly do to change any of this um and you know here is your life kind of looks at that on an individual uh, scale what can this person do to release himself from this this existence where you know the old man in that film you know 40 50 years of doing this particular job very proud of the work he's done but you look at it and you think oh that's i'm, I'm glad you're proud of it but look at yeah. all that that you've done to your body and that you've done to your life and it's almost over um what what do you really have and uh, you know maybe that's a cynical way of looking at it but but uh you know i had this i had very similar thoughts going through my head as i watched this movie and thought these people who you know some of them probably only did this for a summer or two um but others this was what they did for their adulthood uh, raising kids on the side and and spending you know eight ten hours twelve hours a day at this factory for 30 years till they finally were able to retire and uh, it, uh, who knows what state of mind and of, of uh, what physical state. Yeah. Well, no, you, you, you know, my mind is drawn to these kind of philosophical thoughts of people who really just, they've kind of given their life over to the corporations for the sake of maybe just procreating. I mean, they, they have the children and they educate them and maybe they hope for a, a more creative uh, future for them. But in the meantime, I'm just going to be a, a factory drone. I'm just going to work and, and support my family and put a little away for a pension and hope I can maybe travel and see a little bit of the world and have a little bit of fun before it's all said and done there. But yeah, yeah, your mind, at least my mind goes into some fairly dark places of kind of humans being almost farmed <laughs> for, for the sake of this economic uh, output that they're able to, um, generate you know, when put into these industrial processes and it's like is that really the totality of what this person's life is assumed to be by this economic order that they've been born into and you know how much are we you know products of a system that's even larger and more impersonal than what we might even dare to imagine so yeah there, there's yeah I, I think because it is sort of so non-editorial in its, in its its affect. I mean, Mal is just saying, here it is. Draw from it whatever conclusions, whatever uh, observations make sense to you. Uh, what are these people thinking about? Why aren't they talking to each other? You know, what what is it that, that keeps them going? Uh, you know, there's a lot of blanks to be filled in here, but this is really very effective cinema. And, uh, you know, well, you, you cut. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, we, we should recognize that to some extent, Maul does insert those blinks himself with his choices 
Um, well, yeah, there is editorial decision making here. What is he choosing to show? Yeah. What is he leaving out? He, he, what but, conversations did he leave out? Mm -hmm. And, and he, you know, he follows characters True. who finish their job as they they go and disrobe from their protective gear, and you know, he just follows them around. So you know, he, he's definitely he's put together what we see, but also a lot of what we what we might not see. Now, I don't, I'm not complaining. I think this is important, and I think that it's it's beautiful, but. Um, you know his his removing himself from the atmosphere uh certainly i don't think applies to him uh removing his perspective you know even from that opening scene where you shift from this beautiful countryside which certainly has its own rigors you know as people tr seek to maintain that but you move over to this agricultural this big, life yeah you move to this big bulky block um you know eyesore and then you go inside of it that's um you know he he's he's starting the film out with a with a statement right there that um, editorializes the whole thing, but but I agree with you, his ability in this one to to step aside and not be talking to these people is just it's it's brilliant and and um, and keeps those that that space. You know, again, you kind of can see beyond what their the physical body is doing to to what this must be doing to their to their minds. Well, I think there's definitely some uh, editorial juxtaposition in in looking at the three parts because, from a general standpoint, if you look at the first part, I mean, we're we're, we're looking at at big picture stuff. We're looking at big chunks, so we're looking at huge rolls of sheet metal. We're looking at them being formed into hoods. We're seeing the the interaction with that, you know pulling over a fender, uh, sliding the engine over, this type of thing. So, you know, some re the really big parts of putting a car together. And then you go to the auto show where you see people nitpicking all of this. And after the nitpicking, when we go back to the factory, then we're looking at, for the most part, some very, very, if not intricate, at least very uh, uh, manual from a using-your-hand standpoint of, you know, you know, women sewing uh, the upholstery or putting springs into a seat or, again, going back to the wire, uh, the wire rigs, the harnesses. You know, it, it's very interesting to me that after you see people, you know, just kind of picking it apart, then you go in and see some of the real fine detail yet still very mundane work that goes into building these cars. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of the zeroing in on the micro after after the macro bigger yes, picture yes. stuff. You know, the other thing too, I think that just needs to be um, brought forth here is that Miles shows himself to be a master of direct cinema, that kind of more you know cinema verite style, uh, which is quite impressive. I think of like the Alan King set, you know, which is he's kind of another you know real uh, you know proponent of this. Just let the camera observe, capture real life, interesting things happening. And, and of course, the Alan King documentary set is one of my very favorite Eclipse series as well. Mm -hmm. But for a mile to step out of a very, you know, pretty successful feature filmmaking career and then say, okay, I'm going to try my hand at this, a very different style of filmmaking, and I think succeeding quite brilliantly. Uh, you know, that just shows an incredible versatility and uh, a, a real. Uh, strong grasp of of 
you know, different ways of, of creating cinematic work uh, and doing them at a very high level. I mean, you, you, Trevor, you also talked about things like Zazie down La Metro, and, which is a, an incredibly kinetic, hyperactive, uh, you know, type of movie making and, and the, the more slow, ponderous stuff that Mal was able to do. And to be able to, to modulate his style to say, here's my subject and here's a way of presenting that subject that is very fitting for you know, what I see in it or what I want to represent. Uh, just my hat's off to him as a, as a, you know, exceedingly talented uh, director. Uh, you know, quite, quite an impressive piece of work here. So how about we move on to Place de la, Place de la Republique. Uh, this is a street corner or an intersection in France, in Paris. Mm -hmm. A kind of a working class neighborhood, apparently, from what I read in the notes here. And uh, that's what you see uh, a lot of. Um, the, the notes that Michael Koreski wrote indicate that Mal originally had some different intentions. He was going to shoot at a variety of locations, and I don't exactly know what his overall ambitions were. Was he trying to capture a portrait of the city, a portrait of his society? Uh, but it seems like uh, maybe from more of a grandiose uh, ambition at the beginning, he whittled it down to a much more practical manageable thing, which was to set up a crew of uh, camera and audio recorders that would just kind of prowl this particular block of, uh, of Paris for a couple of weeks in the fall of 1973 and just capture footage of ordinary people going about their ordinary lives, except rather than the more kind of passive observational style that we just saw in Humane, Trope Humane, he's going to be much more interactive. He's going to He's going to chase people down that look interesting. He's going to ask questions. He's going to interrogate, if you will, and and find out what's on their mind. And uh, after a couple of weeks or so of doing that, he had enough footage to say, okay, let's make a movie out of all this. So uh, a different kind of experience here. Uh, definitely much more chatty, much more dialogue-driven, and maybe in a kind of a twisted sense, kind of a... You know, part of the path that led him to do something like My Dinner with Andre, which was just a conversation between two men. This is a conversation between uh, Louis Mal and and uh, many other people, people of no particular fame or reputation or even particular um, caliber of, of thought or qualification to, to say that their opinion is is any more important or worth considering than anybody else's. He just sort of took a grab bag sampling, and I'm sure he sifted through many hours of dud interviews that didn't really go anywhere and, and crafted this little portrait of street life in Paris uh, in the early 70s. Uh, so who wants to take the first stab at uh, peeling away the layers on this one? Well, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind, Keith. Um, right just, just because. <laughs> Jump on in, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> just because maybe you guys can. I didn't mind this one, but it was definitely my least favorite, and and so it kind of started out on a sour note. Uh, just to get a little bit um, uh, behind the scenes here, uh, this election season just made me kind of sick of things like Facebook. Um, I I went through a, a big purge when it was done. I mean, I've always kind of thought Facebook is a, 
is uh, a mixed bag, something I've been tempted to get rid of a time or two. But, you know, I love our Criterion group, for example, so I don't want to get rid of things like that. But with the election, I, I really just kind of felt like, boy, I'm, I need to, to get away from some of this because, you know, there are people on here that I would like them if I didn't, if I weren't their Facebook friend, <laughs> you know, something like that going on, um, yeah. where it just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's poisoned some of my relationships, um, maybe for better or for worse. I'll, but, um, but my ultimate decision was to just kind of get rid of, of almost all of it, but keep some of the things that I do enjoy. So I, I have like 20 friends now, um, and you know i'm i'm part of the criterion groups that i that i enjoy um yours keith <laughs> and and then that's about all that <laughs> i do you. on it um uh, and it wasn't a, an attempt to like hurt people's feelings it just was something that i thought you know i don't think they even care if i'm their friend um i would rather keep in touch with people in a different way and this this film just started to feel like facebook to me at, at its worst <laughs> where like you said david you've That's got funny. this mixed grab bag of people and it doesn't matter what their opinions uh, what what substance you know is in their opinions they're still going to express them and i just started to get annoyed by the whole thing and not because it wasn't interesting but i kind of felt like here's an early version of facebook just go and get a bunch of people spouting off what they feel about the world today um about you know the economy about politics about life in general um most of them actually not particularly profound and rather than profound they actually show several deficiencies that must be in the the perspective of the person spouting them off you know you've got um you've got people in here who are who are feeling you know i imagine emboldened by the request to share their opinion um and they just spout some of the some things that i just found awful and they don't even understand that they're doing it and so I, that's that put it in the mind of Facebook, and I just thought well, now might not be the best time for me to enjoy this documentary. Um, and a lot Trevor's of Trevor's inner misanthrope is coming out here. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get back to Shimizu, uh, where, where the other side of me comes out and embraces humanity. <laughs> um, you know, no, this just uh, this just and, and a lot of the things that they're talking about are things that are still very relevant today. You know. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of fear of the other in this, in this particular film, which, which is important to see. It's important to see that ugliness that can, that can underlie, you know, just these, these individuals you pass on the street every day that you never understand the fears and the phobias that, um, that influence their decisions that really have far reaching effects and that the film, um, shows quite well, but again, uh, no better than Facebook in my mind. Not that Mall should have been trying to to be Facebook, um, but it just uh, you know, like I say, I think I liked the film, but it it raised up my gall a little bit <laughs> too much for me to to know for sure if I was uh, you know I wasn't uh, uh, just just in, in, engaged with the the film in a way that allowed me to appreciate it so much as engaged in it in a way that made me you know more reactionary and uh, and just like oh I I really don't need to watch these people 
tell me that they they hate Algerians, for example, that all of them are are um, secretive and hiding things from you. And so, no, I'd never date an Algerian or something like that. You know, just as an example of of what we have in this film that um, sadly just reminded me too much of today. So. There, that that's my two bits for now. I thought I'd start us out Fair on, enough, on no, the I more think, negative I, side and and see if, you know, I, I do this because you're usually so good at resurrecting my my negativity into something more positive, David. <laughs> no, no, you you've just cratered my entire admiration. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think I think probably this is a bit of a historic context thing where this type of movie was kind of unique and probably hadn't really been seen of this sort of really allowing the common folk just to speak their mind. I I think, you know, Mal is definitely exercising some editorial discretion here. It seems like he has a uh, an affinity for the more eccentric or more colorful. Uh, and, and some of these people, I guess, I, I there are some people who are a bit on the more charming side. I think that, that uh, older woman with the infectious laughter who likes to swish her coat behind her and shows off her legs. And you can tell she's kind of an old charmer, an old flirt. You know, she's gotten up there in years now, but she's still very lively and, and vibrant in her personality. And, and just and, the fact you know, that she can say, yeah. do you like what you see? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At that age. You know, yeah, I, like, That's I, I got a, a kick attitude. out of her. <laughs> but but you're right. There there is a lot of vulgarity. There's a lot of parochialism. There's uh, and 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 it is interesting. I think it seems like most of Mao's um, more voluble uh, contributors here, the people who willing to speak the most, are are on the older side of things. Uh, the people who don't really hold back, let's say, or maybe they feel a little you know, less inhibited to be polite and respectable and, and maybe they're just a little bit, you know, freer to, to expound, whereas maybe younger people are in a little bit more of a hurry or a little bit more puzzled as to who is this guy with a camera. Uh, maybe, maybe Mal just wanted to, you know, focus his attention on that part of the society. I don't know. You don't really know exactly how representative it was. But he, he, you know, it's, it's like when uh, Jay Leno used to take his camera out on the street. He, he, obviously, the, the more screwball of a response he got, the more likely it was to show up, uh, you know, on the broadcast. Which I never found funny because it, I didn't right. find humor in watching people's ignorance. And, you know, there certainly is some of that in this film. And... Uh, like you, David, I think my appreciation of this film has been cratered by Trevor because I, I started out the <laughs> first time being a bit annoyed by it. And by watching it for the third time last night, I actually loved it quite a bit. And I kind of yeah. came at it maybe from the same type of Facebook angle, thinking to myself, you know, we're so used to just spouting our opinions uh, on, on social media. We're so used to you know, not necessarily that we're on camera every day, but we're, we're, we live in a world where we know we're being viewed on camera all the time. If somebody came up to me with a, with a digital camera or even an iPhone or whatever, and was filming me, my, my first reaction would not be, what the hell are you doing? It would be, Oh, what do you want to know from me? And, but looking at this from 1973, where people are truly, um, you know, surprised that somebody has thrown a camera in their face and is truly, you know, why would you want to get an opinion from me? 
I mean, nobody asks that anymore. You know, everybody thinks, you know, their opinion is what everybody needs to hear. Um, so, yeah, it was unfortunate to hear some of these horrible things that people were saying, especially the woman with, you know, she would, she would marry anybody except an Algerian or an African, you know, just horrible stuff. Um, but, you know, not something that you necessarily would have ever gotten straight from the horse's mouth in, in you know, you know, ordinary conversation or, or film or whatever. So from that aspect, I thought it was, you know, very, very interesting. Um, you know, Trevor, you were talking before about how, you know, Maul had, you know, shrunk back so much in some of the previous documentaries. But, of course, that doesn't happen here. I mean, he's on camera just as much as, you know, just about any of the main characters. Um you know, it, it uh, was just a. Uh, what surprises me is when you look at a neighborhood like that. You know, they say it's a working class neighborhood, but yet, from my perception of a working class neighborhood, it was it was very very bright, vibrant. You know, so many people still wore suits and all of that. It, mm-hmm. it, it would it would not have. It was surprising to me to hear that described as more of a, a working class neighborhood, just because of all the different types that you saw. Yeah, and, and to me, it, it is more urbane. Maybe we think of working class, at least here in the in the states, as more you know factory like or right. you know. But I also think about this the level of discourse and. You know, I don't want to sound too snobby or elitist here, but even the people with with somewhat blinkered or prejudiced opinions were were pretty articulate. They could yes. sort of make their case, and I don't know. I see a lot of people. I can go to my local big box retailer. I won't pick out anyone, but it's like I just wonder how many of those folks really could have even the level of conversation. I don't know. I'm probably sounding really snobby and really kind of condescending by saying something like that, but I. I guess I'll just say I think there's a, a certain density <laughs> in a lot of my uh, fellow citizens that um, I'll go with I don't you know. on that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I'll just let us just lay it out there. I guess I'll just say my own kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the positive one here and saying I disagree entirely that everyone is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> just how they choose well, to show it sometimes. You're well, going of course. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well. I also like how Louis Mal approaches the different people. I mean, he, there's a sensitivity and a curiosity that I think is very genuine. I, I mean, he's he's sitting there listening to somebody spout some fairly, you know, ignorant stuff, or you know, people who've just kind of gotten out of the psychiatric hospital and are kind of you can tell they're a little bit on the woozy side of just kind of just barely holding it together. But he he does seem to have a a fundamental respect for their humanity. And he, he, he really does want to get to know what's going on with them. I mean, we, we talked about what's going on in the minds of these people on the factory assembly line. And he's, mm-hmm. he's wanting to sort of give them that opportunity to sort of speak their mind and, and unpack it a little bit and, and to let the rest of the world know, Hey, these, these masses that are just strolling by, maybe they do have something to say. Maybe I need to give my, you know, big box uh, retail neighbor a little bit more credit. But like you say, Trevor, I've seen a lot of stuff on Facebook that just kind of leaves me wondering, what are you thinking? Or or how close attention are you really paying these days? Yeah, <laughs> and why aren't you definitely... thinking? Exactly. And, and why yeah. are you just going along with the party line? Why are you just swallowing this rubbish without even challenging your own assumptions? And um, 
yeah. So yeah, I, I I resonate with a lot of what you had to say about the uh, the aftermath of the election and just kind of what uh, it this process that we've just been through as a society uh, has revealed about our nation and about uh, kind of what lurks within the hearts of so many um, and where do we you know, take this mess from here. So <laughs> I, I probably will be editorializing along those lines a little bit more vocally and more pointedly and upcoming reviews and podcasts. And I know, I know for a fact that the, the last two films in this series uh, will open the door <laughs> to some very yes, yes. timely political <laughs> conversation. So I, I definitely look forward to getting into that with you guys. And I do not intend or and uh, want to hold anything back if we have observations to make when we get there uh, in a few weeks from now. Well, my but, yeah. maybe maybe I should say too. Uh, you know, you, you you certainly made me re- realize, and I did I did see the strengths of this film, and I also don't think it's bad that people are sharing their mind. It's more just the um, the, uh, the these quick snippets sometimes don't give people the ability to really. Or they don't take the opportunity to 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 think and to express themselves. You, you get a lot of um, of knee jerk. So so I should tell you that while you're saying you're you're about to spread your opinions, that's not my issue for sure. No, I understand. I hope that. you didn't it's, think that. It's the it's the content. <laughs> it's it's just the kind of the shallowness of it. I I, I get what you're saying, Keith. You were going to drop into something. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm well, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. sorry. No, I was. <laughs> I was just going to say that my reaction after the election was that I just pulled back completely, and I've been disengaged from all of this. So I'm actually looking forward to when we get to those, you know, those third set of movies to really kind of get back into this because uh, I agree with you. Those those final two films really do speak to a lot of this. All right. Well, are there other thoughts on Plaster Republic? I mean, this is really one where there's no plot development there's there's uh, you know the character studies kind of come and go there's a few interesting things i guess there's that uh, a few characters who kind of come back for repeat appearances which you don't exactly expect that when you're first watching through you figure it's just going to be all these random one-time encounters there's a kind of the attractive young blonde woman who ends up becoming a little bit part of the the film crew herself She's also well, gone through a kind of a purse snatching incident, so you, you yeah. get a little bit of the immediacy of of real time drama going on there, and and that this wasn't just some kind of a staged thing. I mean, uh, nobody's saying that it was, but it just you know the the um, it just makes it a little bit more compelling. These things that are going on. I mean, some of these elderly folks who are clearly winding down their lives, and again, you get to some of those kind of more somber thoughts about, you know, how their life has been spent and what kind of tragedies they've had to endure. Uh, This woman who uh, really was a survivor of Hitlerism and, and, you know, even though she goes into this incredibly, you know, (laughs) zigzaggy ramble, um, just her observations, you know, about what Hitler, his influence had personally on her, even though she knows he doesn't know her. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't have any idea who she is. But just, uh, I don't know, there was something kind of compelling about her speaking of her own experience uh, as slightly demented as it all turned out to be at, at the yeah. end of it all. Yeah. Well, I did want to mention something about that that young blonde woman. Uh, you know, the movie started out with... Um, 
a another attractive woman kind of dressed like uh, in gypsy clothing that they were wearing in the early 70s. And, you know, she was having none of it. You know, I don't care if you have a camera. It just feels like you're hitting on me. And, um, you know, it, I found it interesting that, you know, the 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 second woman that, that, you know, was hanging around the lottery and had her personal and all that, you know, even though they're trying to be somewhat objective with just uh, observing people on the street, there was still at one scene where it looked like the entire crew, mall's entire crew of like seven people were just glommed onto this onto this yeah, young woman. Yeah, they, so, they mean, definitely really, like photogenic here. Yeah. You know? So I mean, it really does kind of speak to you know, um, you know how men did look at women back then and still do, but you know. Uh, you know, but it was much more accepted just to kind of have your tongue hanging out like that. Mm-hmm. And but I, but even with that, I have to admit that once they gave her a microphone and and she was very very compelling. I mean, I really yeah. enjoyed listening to what she was asking people. It was it was it was a good choice for them to kind of uh, quote unquote force themselves upon her and, and well, have her really interact in this. When she walks up to a. 50 something year old guy says so tell me about your sex life yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah okay that's that's, uh, that's a certain amount of gumption there of course of course uh, all right well i think we've probably covered these films pretty well there may be more to be said so if you want to chime in on the conversation you can hit us up on twitter at eclipse viewer or uh, at any of our individual accounts i'm sure we'll all happily uh, chime in or or uh kind of reply to the other thoughts that any of our listeners might have mm-hmm. uh final thoughts on this first phase of the set anybody uh just kind of have a parting word or two before we wrap things up here trevor yeah i'm excited for more because i i did enjoy the experience of these films as i mentioned the place de la republique probably um a, a severe reaction on my end not due to the film um being terrible but due to you know other things on the outside but actually due to the film being quite a brilliant um exercise and mall showing off a lot more of what he can do but these are very diverse you know just these first three you know we talked about his diversity as a filmmaker but even his diversity as a documentarian the diverse styles that he's shown the diverse um subjects uh even all all of them being within france and these being kind of his french documentaries and such so i'm anxious to get to even a, another far flung you know the long form um massive documentary uh in india that we're going to talk about next time and then and then the 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 remaining two and and to just see how different they are this is this has certainly been one of my uh one of my favorite sets for probably for some time. I, I like a lot of these, but this one, this one has been a lot of fun to, to explore. And, um, just again, goes to show how much, uh, how, how much skill and, and, um, diversity just in, in his thinking and his, his understanding of the different ways that we express ourselves mall had and, and, um, put on film for us. Excellent. All right, Keith, I'll give you a little final summarization as we move on here. Very strong set. Um, feel silly for not having watched this first disc, uh, even though it's been on my shelf for seven or eight years. Um, i very, very impressed with what Maul is doing here. Really looking forward to the the 
as Trevor said, you know, getting into the long form with the with the India stuff. I mean, that's you know really taking a deep dive. I mean, talk about the antithesis to the uh, to the Vive La Tour disc. We're going to really see what happens there. Um, just very, very um, incredibly, uh, just very, very fulfilling watching these movies. And I'm really glad that I had a chance and really needed to watch them two or three times because I feel really feel like I got into something that uh, was a, a bit mind-changing and a little bit... Uh, perspective altering um my 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 appreciation for louis mall just went from something that was quite high to something that's really really high so um looking forward to more yeah yeah i i agree i think uh i will go back to some of his feature films with a little bit more uh in well not not that it was a lack of enthusiasm on my part but just knowing sort of this is louis mall the the you know the the human being the the compassionate observer of of the human condition uh i think will uh just add an extra layer of richness to the 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 more conventional feature style films that he's made over a very uh lively and interesting career so yeah i i think this is a fantastic set and whether you have it on the eclipse disc or you want to check it out on filmstruck uh, i really invite people to to you know, plop down and watch some of these. They're, they, you know, these three films in particular are all pretty short, pretty digestible, and even if you have to watch them in segments, I think you can pause it and pick it right back up, and uh, and really be, a, be be part of the conversation that I've enjoyed this morning with uh, my friends Trevor and Keith. So, thank you all for listening in, and we'll be back in a couple more weeks. We're going to digest uh, six episodes of Phantom India, six hour long episodes, as well as the uh, uh, another film that mile made calcutta uh, based on those same experiences i think he took a six or seven month excursion to india in 1968 and uh these are the relics that he brought back from that life-changing experience and we're going to get a chance to experience them for ourselves over the next couple of weeks and we'll be back in december to talk about it then so thank you for listening to everybody we look forward to hearing from you and uh, we'll join you a couple more weeks from now so thanks again bye-bye